Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 2, Episode 23 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. Pea Supers, it's arrived. It's Part 2 of my interview with my friend and fellow organisational psychologist, Sarah Bonner. In Part 1, we got to know a bit about Sarah. She shared some insights into her career history, including a major change of direction, and we got a glimpse into her groundbreaking research which explored the experience of black women in the UK creative industries. It's called Tapping into Black Magic. This episode is focused on the extraordinary findings of that research. If you want to skip back and listen to part one, that's cool. You'll get to know a bit more about Sarah. Or if you want to plunge straight in and listen to the outcomes of the research, go right ahead. People Soup is a podcast that takes evidence-based psychology and behavioural science with the aim of making it accessible, useful and fun for humans at work and beyond. This is based upon a foundation of contextual behavioural science and other complementary psychological approaches. We aim to make our content interesting for humans, whether you're curious about psychology in the workplace, a psychologist, a leader, a therapist, a team member or anyone really who reflects on how they show up at work. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, a first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. And that was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first-rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. Welcome to People Soup. Before we go on, a review and a little bit of news. So we have a new review over on Apple Podcasts from Dr. Guy Meadows from The Sleep School. And Guy said, Absolutely fantastic podcast. If you're interested in workplace psychology or fancy improving your own mental well-being, then this is a great place to learn. Ross's relaxed and funny approach makes listening very easy. Keep up the great work. Cheers, Guy. Guy, thank you so much for that. And I'm even more delighted to let our P-Supers know that I'm arranging for Guy to come on as a guest on the podcast. We'll be recording in, I think, around mid-June. So I'll let you know, because that's going to be a cracker of an episode. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about The Sleep School, I'll put the details on the show notes of this episode. In other news, I did my first live recording on Friday evening with my pod pal, Maddie, one of the co-hosts of Freaking the Fuck Out podcast. We hosted a select audience at the Projects in Brighton and had a great time chatting about imposter syndrome. That episode will land over the next week or so. Okay, onwards, P-Supers. Let's get straight on and rejoin the conversation with Sarah to hear all about her research, Tapping into Black Magic. I adore that title. It's, it's amazing. A, it's a good title. It kind of grabs your attention. How can, can you introduce us to your research? What's, what's, what's the best way to take us into a journey on your research? Oh, um, I think the best way to take you in is to kind of tell you about why I yes. thought oh, I good. needed to do it. Tell me the why. Tell me the why. The so what and the why. So, um, coming from a background in media, uh, as a black woman in media, that I'm obviously interested in uh, the statistics around female leadership and how many black women there are in leadership roles. I was also interested in diversity quotas as well and the underrepresentation of 
black minority ethnic people in the media and the media industry. So I was really kind of looking at that and I was really interested in that world, coming from that world too. But what I was more interested in is I'm interested in about, whilst there's loads of focus and attention at the top of that chain in terms of how do you get more women Mm. and black people into leadership positions, I was thinking, well, it's all very good focusing at that top end, but mm. what happens at the bottom end? You, if, we, if we're not getting people to leadership positions, we need to think about how, we, how we're recruiting them and helping them work their way through that talent pipeline. Mm. If we don't understand what's going on at the bottom end of the ladder, yeah. how can you address the issues at the top of the ladder? So that's why I was really focused on it. And... I just wanted to understand what was happening, what were the experiences that young black women were having at entry-level positions that were shaping their experiences and Mm. their perception of the industry. What was potentially causing kind of hidden barriers, challenges to their career and their career progression? Wow. P-Supers, I've read the executive summary and also the poster you did for the, for the, the prize day whatever it's called. Yeah. This is such an amazing piece of work that just... It, this you. This needed a light shone on it. Yeah. And I'm pleased in that the, the people soup can shine a little extra light in it and share your research with a bit of a Thank wider you. audience because Thank I think you. it's... Oh, gosh. It's so blooming important. It is. So I'm going to read out a bit from your executive summary. just oh, Just to set the scene wowzers. because... Um, I just read the, the first paragraph and it was absolutely hooked. Oh. So, so it's titled The Problem. Mm-hmm. Despite working towards an industry target of 40% female representation and 15% black and minority ethnic representation at senior levels by 2020, there is a pressing issue that creative organisations need to address if they are to live up to their liberal reputation. This troubling issue is the underrepresentation of black women within the creative industry. Even though black women have the creative capability, their talent is not being recognised or fully utilised within the marketing, advertising and publishing sectors. That is... Gosh, this is such a great... I'm so excited. So, Thank you. So tell, tell me more. Tell me more. To, like, how did you look into this? So um, I looked into this by... Start, I, I started looking at this in terms of the black female experience and in in terms of when we think about disadvantaged groups mm. and we think about black women it's generally in the context of black men or white women so when we look at how groups are affected you gen- they're the two images that come to mind black men or white women so i was really keen to understand when you belong to two disadvantaged groups how does the intersectionality mm. of that pre- double kind of prejudice yeah. affect your experience? So you're kind of doubling down on, on a situation that is already difficult, but if you've got two layers mm. of prejudice or two layers of disadvantage, then you're in a very unique position, and I don't think anybody's really doing anything to address that or to consider it. So the strategies that are in place really are kind of a bit too one-dimensional. Is, is it the case that organisations have called sort of lazy perceptions, or maybe lazy is the wrong word, but we need people like you and your research to open their eyes to say, hey, have you recognised that you're focusing typically on white women and black men, 
what about black women? Yeah, I, I do. Because it kind of feels like they fall between two they do, and that's, stools. Oh, it's a terrible expression. Yeah, but, but it is, that's, that, that's the intersectionality, and that's where you kind of fall down this gap. Mm. They fall down this gap. And I think organisations, just they just haven't considered it. I think they, they're focusing on the good that they're doing by looking at mm. two pressing issues of diversity. Mm. But I don't think anybody has had the foresight to think about the nuance yeah. Of two groups that come My gosh. that cross over. So is it a, is it a responsibility of researchers too? I think it's a responsibility of researchers, but I think it's about organisations and researchers working together and wanting mm. to kind of be proactive about understanding what the issues are. But if organisations aren't talking to their workforces or even willing to acknowledge it or see it, it's a big issue. So it's it's about understanding the experience from. From different groups, and this is a group that has been forgotten. Absolutely, they are a forgotten group. And and you and, and throughout my research, you, I heard the most unbelievable stories of these four women who were brave enough to share their experiences with mm. me. They were amazing, and they were very candid and very honest. And there were times when I was sitting there, and I I my heart was breaking for some of the stories that these oh, that these girls told me. I mean, some of them are really shocking. There was one that springs to mind where this girl, she was quite young, early 20s. Mm. And she had a boss in his 40s. Her boss was a white middle-class male. She is a black working-class female. And her boss decided to take her out for a coffee which she said was unusual because mm. they didn't really get on. Yeah. And he said to her, and the words were, before I could even put sugar in my flat white, he said to me, I don't like your kind, your kind make me uncomfortable. And he said that to her. And she said they were sitting at a table and he was shaking because he was so angry. And she just had to sit there and listen to this torrent of abuse from him because at the end of the day, he was her boss. And she didn't know what to do. It came out of nowhere. This young girl had the presence of mind to say, there are certain things that I can't change, but attitudes can change. So what can we do to make this better? Can you imagine My goodness. having to say that? And that's just a small snippet of the, of the experiences these women are forced to endure on a regular basis mm. and that's the overt aggression that they're experiencing never mind the microaggressions the micro insults yeah. the micro invalidations that they have to endure every single day in an all white environment generally it's an all white environment i'm flabbergasted and and like you say it's heartbreaking to hear that yeah and but what, what presence of mind your research participant had? Because yeah. I can't think of many people who would have, have had taken that stance. Yeah. My goodness. Exactly. And you were talking about microaggressions, micro... Insults and micro-invalidations. This wasn't micro. No. The, <laughs> this was this macro. Was just, this so, was macro. So, this was over. So, so what, are, what are micros? What's the micro so stuff? So micro stuff is the things that... You, um, black people will experience that are sometimes they're intentional sometimes they're unintentional mm. so a micro insult might be something like 
gosh, you speak well. Mm. Haven't you done well for yourself? Mm. Things like that. Um, so whilst the, the intent behind the statement is good, yeah. what it actually is saying subconsciously, you don't see. You see me as someone mm. that you don't expect to be doing well. You don't expect anything more than this yeah. from yeah. a person okay. who is yeah. not the same as you mm. and it's it's un- and I say not the same as you these comments are generally coming from somebody that's white to somebody that's not white so that that's a common theme there um there are kind of micro invalidations and that and this is one of the most difficult things I was having a conversation with someone about this the other day there's lots of talk about well I don't see color I don't see race I think we're all the same I don't see difference and it gets to the point where, okay, that's fine. As somebody who's white and privileged, that's fine. You're in a privileged position. But for you to say you don't see colour, you don't see difference, you are invalidating my experience yeah. as a black person. You are not recognising that you are in a position of privilege. Mm. And it's not the same for everybody. So by saying there's no such thing as racism anymore, that... A is insulting because there is because you don't have to live it you don't have to experience it and mm. you are then invalidating my experience or the black experience by just saying there's no such thing I don't I don't you know I'm not racist I think everyone's the same I don't see colour and mm. and I think it's okay to see colour you should see colour because you have to see difference in people because that's we are different it's not about noticing the colour it's about recognizing what you do when you see the difference and that's where you have this this is what distinguishes people Mm. i feel do you subconsciously unconsciously behave Mm. in a certain way when you see that difference but pretend that you don't it's about the unconscious bias Mm. it's about the internal reaction that you can't control and it's about being aware of that Thank you so much for explaining that so clearly and articulately because um, I think it's really important for me to hear that but also for the, for the P-Supers to, to reflect on that. It was only, I had a conversation last week with someone very senior in an organisation I work with and they said exactly that. A white middle-aged man said, oh, I don't see colour or race and I'm, I, I'm not painting myself as the perfect person mm-hmm. here but I said to him nonsense Yay, because 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 I, I couldn't put it as articulately as you but I said but that's I, I, I simply don't believe you exactly that's that's just it just feels a little bit trendy and right on it really does but, but we, we do see see colour we do see differences we do see differences in ability and disability we see differences in styles yeah. we see Good grief, we're picking up all these differences all the time. Exactly, and individuality is its a good thing. It's okay yes. for people to be individuals. It's about how you choose to respond to that individual. Yes. So if you're not aware that maybe you respond in a very specific way when you see a mm. very specific colour or behaviour or whatever it is, that, that's the issue. So recognising mm. difference is not a problem. It's when you, it's how you are programmed mm. to respond to that difference. That's I, the issue. And it's almost like where we, we 
as someone with white privilege, I don't always recognize my, my white privilege. Mm-hmm. It's me noticing when I'm on that sort of autopilot, noticing what my mind's doing. It's, it's maybe categorizing or putting, doing some lazy categorization or mm-hmm. stereotyping yeah. and making assumptions based on that, which could then even drive my behavior. Exactly. And I think that that's the problem. And I think that's what my research was really showing. And, it, and you know, we all have bias. We all have unconscious bias. Yeah. It's, not, it's not, you know, unique to one particular group within society. Mm. Everybody has it. It's about whether you are prepared to recognise it and challenge it and do something about it. Yeah. Um, but that's what I was seeing within my research was that there are certain groups of people that are treating other groups of people in a very specific way. Mm. They were labelling them. They were, whether they were conscious about that labelling, but there is a very specific set of treatment towards these people Mm. that was really systemic and it was really institutional and structural within the industry. I think we need to be prepared to have more conversations like this, many, many more conversations like this. Because until then, we're not going to get stuff out on the, on the table to actually look at exactly. and explore. And your research does that. Now, you used a, a particular method. Yes. So you talked about four people. So this, this, people. this method is it's a qualitative method. Is yes, that right? Yes, it is. It's a qualitative method. And... Um, and um, P-Supers, I'm sure you've heard about Qual and Quant. I know Lauren spoke about it when That's right, um, yeah. she was with you. So I chose Qual because I really like um, hearing about people's experiences. Mm. Um, numbers and looking for patterns in numbers is not my thing. And stats. Um, and, and stats. So I'm, your data was, was the words. Was the words and looking through the words. So I wanted rich contextual data. That's why I mm. did what is called an IPA. Um, interpretive phenomenological analysis, which is always really hard to say. I'm, even I'm very, say. I'm already heaving a sigh of relief that you said that, <laughs> and I didn't have to. But let's not even get onto epistemological and ontological, <laughs> because that's when it gets really, really messy. Um, that's a spin-off episode. Yeah, it is. Let's do that. Yeah. You're going to have to get. That's like. Hollyoaks after dark. That's like a, oh a late God. night episode. There's still an we, episode of that that still haunts me. Where we really day. get our geek on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I really wanted. I love words still. Yeah. That's kind of been something that's run through my career. Oh gosh, yeah. From and yeah, that richness of information mm. and data and speaking to people and it, hearing about their stories and extracting information mm. and being curious. That's so powerful. It's so powerful and. So, there, so yes, I did. I interviewed four amazing women about their experiences, and um, and then from their interviews, some of which were as long as two hours long, My really long interviews. Um, you transcribe them, um, which takes. A while. Oh gosh, did you do your own? I did my own. Yeah, me I felt too. that uh, it's it's so hard. I remember being it, told by um, Paula that if you don't get down and dirty with your data and you're not there wanting to cry and mm. possibly run away from your project, then yeah. you're not doing something. Right. It's 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 an amazing research method. I didn't do IPA. I did uh, template analysis. But What's um, template analysis. You can have existing themes to start off with, and then as you as you code your data, the words, you can start 
diddling around with the themes a bit, adding stuff on, wow. maybe moving them around wow. a bit. That's good. Yeah, it's but, but similarly, immersing yourself in the data and transcribing mm. every mm and ah mm. and has a tendency to drive me a bit loopy. It does, particularly when you can't hear what they've said very clearly mm. and then you have to keep going back and you listen to something about 20 times. And you times. slow it down so they're going... Oh, it's awful. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, that took a long time. I think I was transcribing for, it felt like, about two months. <laughs> yeah. I laugh, but that's like nervous <laughs> it, laugh. Because yeah. you are there. Yeah. You do one and then you finish and yeah. you think, I've got to start the next one now. <laughs> and you just stick by the fourth one. Yeah. And I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> but it's worth it because you kind of yeah. go through that stage. Oh gosh, like, it's so worth it because really I'm worth it. I'm just looking at your poster here. Uh huh. Might we be able to put this poster up yeah. on the show notes? Would Absolutely, that be okay? that'd, be, that'd be lovely. A because it's beautiful. Thank you. And B, but far more importantly, it's it's bringing to life a kick-ass bit of research. Mm-hmm. So talk me about talk to me about your themes because that's what you get from this type yeah, of research, so isn't it? Yeah, so the themes that you get, so after coding your data, I kind of and you look at everything, you kind of look at the themes. So I ended up with two master themes. Mm-hmm. Um, one was called empowerment. So in relation to what the women were experiencing and if I had to kind of g- bucket up the the findings mm. at a very top-line level. I had empowerment, which is about the methods the women kind of employ to kind of come to terms with and deal with their negative experiences, mm. the, way, the different ways in which they empowered, they took control of themselves and their behaviour. And then I had disempowerment, which is literally about the different ways that they were possibly not perceive, but the different experiences and how that impacted them on a day-to-day basis mm. and how maybe some of the oppressive views or the oppressive treatment kind of manifested itself within their industries. Mm. So within the empowerment, I had kind of two clear sub-themes. One was self-control and self-preservation. So this was about mm. the ways the women found to keep themselves motivated and how they kind of dug deep and found this kind of inner strength to cope with mm. with the way they were treated so as I was telling you that um, one of my participants talked about how she had that presence of mind to say you know I can't change certain things but we can change attitudes that is amazing and how sometimes these women they just they just found ways to just keep going which was unbelievable. And the things they did to preserve themselves, there was one girl who was speaking to me about the fact that she had this amazing idea. She was working for one of those subscription-based clubs that sends you a box of whatever it is every Mm. month. And she was working there. She'd been employed to do um, creative content. And she suggested that they broaden their target audience to be black women. Mm. And she was told directly that they were not the right demographic. So there's, again, that really suggests that there's this 
unconscious or maybe even conscious perception of black women as being lesser than, as being inferior, Mm. as not being sophisticated, as being poor, not being able to afford it, not being something you want your brand associated with. So in terms of how they're viewed within society, they're Mm. seen as these people that are not worthy. Mm. And that was really shocking. So she said that, (laughs) you know, the way she learned to deal with that was that sometimes even if she knew the idea was going to be rejected, she just found a way to just tell somebody. And she said, as long as I released the idea and told somebody, she said, I don't care what they did with it, I just needed to know that I vocalised it to Mm. somebody. And she said, I didn't care if they claimed it as their own, whether they didn't do anything with it, but at least I had the confidence to share my creative ideas. And that's the way she Mm. had the self-discipline, self-control and self-preservation. And then the other thing that I noticed as well within the research is that there's this confidence curve that Mm. women have, which is, this was like a new kind of concept for us. Um, There was nothing out there that replicated this. And I thought from the research and the findings that this is something that's very unique to the black female experience. So what we noticed was is that when the women enter the industry, they're full of hope and excitement and um, and confidence, actually. Mm. They're full of a huge amount of confidence. But as their time in the industry progresses mm. and, then, and, their, and how they are compared to their peers, and it's generally the creative industry, particularly at middle management level, is very white, middle-class, female-dominated. Right. The creative industry is. So as these women came into the industry full of confidence... As their need for peer validation was increased, mm. their confidence went down. Right. So they weren't getting the peer validation from their white female peers. They mm. weren't getting the validation. They weren't being accepted. They weren't being recognised for their ability. So the more they needed that and they mm. looked for it, their confidence took a downward turn. Yeah. To the point they reached rock bottom is where a lot of the women were describing themselves. I won't swear, but they describe themselves in really derogatory terms they felt they were worthless they just couldn't see a way for the for their careers to progress they felt the lowest of the low and at that point something happened there was a transformation at that point that they had to somehow I don't know why but they had to reach rock bottom and there was a transition from needing peer validation to Mm. self-validation and as soon as they made that mental transition Mm. you saw their confidence start taking this upward curve and whilst none of them are right at the back at the top mm. of their confidence level, the ones when I spoke to them, not yet, mm. you could see this definite rise, ascent in their confidence, in this confidence curve. So as the need for peer validation decreases and the self-validation increases, you see the curve go back up. Gosh. So you kind of see this inverted bell curve. Yeah, there's a picture of that on, on your poster yeah. here. That's absolutely fascinating. Tell me more. Tell me more about the... That they so the, is, is that sorry? Are we are we finished the yeah, empowerment that, themes? Yeah, yeah. I think they were they were kind of the themes that were really strong and positive, and I yeah. found that they were kind of there were these two polarizing themes. That's what I found. Mm. So on the one end, you had empowerment, which was yeah. really positive, and it was a real symbol of hope, yeah, and the future and um, mm. strength. You had disempowerment, which yeah. was complete opposite, so the opposite end of the scale. So very polarizing. And what we found from the research was that 
four things were happening. The women, the women's experience could be clustered into four sub themes. Mm-hmm. The first sub theme was kind of this idea of being hyper visible and being invisible simultaneously. So one girl was talking about how her skin was really loud. She said, my skin is loud enough. I don't want to do anything else to draw attention to myself. So what you were finding that the women were self-limiting. So what they were doing is they weren't speaking out when they needed to because they didn't want to be too visible um, because they were very visible for the wrong reasons. So their clothes, their hair, if there was some kind of cultural issue, something about black music or a Mm. riot or something that was culturally specific to them, Mm. suddenly they were very visible. People wanted to talk to them about it. They wanted to comment on it. They wanted to kind of see them at this kind of very kind of top-line level. But when it came to them being recognised and visible for their their creative ability, their professionalism, Mm. their intelligence, they were massively overlooked. So there was one of my participants talked about how she would be in a meeting and her boss had come back from maternity leave and she was the only black girl on the team. And she said the boss would go round every single person and ask their opinion. And when it got to her, she would skip her and it would keep going round. And although this sounds, it sounds ridiculous, and I think some people might be thinking, oh, well, did it really happen? But she's like, yes, and it happened more than once. Another of my um, participants told me about how, again, she changed her hair, she was wearing something, there was mm. something about her physically or food she was eating, people wanted to kind of talk to her about it. Mm. But when it came to promotions or ideas Mm. or being put forward for development programs, she was always overlooked. She said that she had recruited so many people into the organization where she'd interviewed them, recruited Mm. them in a junior level. She said said there were countless, 10 more people, Mm. every single one of them, had superseded her. And and there was a real definite trend in the type of people they were Mm. as well. So that was one thing. Then we talked about aggressions, the kind of aggressions that the women were experiencing. So there was overt aggression, like the story I told you before. And then there were the microaggressions, Mm. which are things like, um, can I touch your hair? That's a big one. It's a big no-no. So, again, it's quite reductive. And one of the girls told me about the fact that a man just touched her hair. He didn't ask permission. He just went, oh, and just touched her hair. Like she was this object that you suddenly lose your individuality. You're not a person, you're just a thing that's there. You're a public property. A little bit like when you're pregnant, suddenly everyone wants to touch your bump. Yeah. Everyone does that. So she said, you kind of, so you're... Again, it's really reductive. You're reduced to nothing. You're just there for somebody else to amuse themselves. Yeah. Um, so there was that. That was a that was a really big thing that they were they experienced a lot of aggression. Day to day, and then there was this idea of stereotypes. How they were kind of treat. There was this need to avoid stereotypes women Mm. black women are categorized in one of three or four ways there's this whole idea of the mammy complex where you are either very subservient Mm. um, and that comes from 
culture, films, you've seen it in films, and I think we counted it from a very young age and we don't realise it. Mm. If you think of, um, I think she's called Mammy Two Shoes in Tom and Jerry. You I see, never knew the name, see, but I was think, just thinking about that. Tom and Jerry. Um, and yeah. that was one of the stereotypes, actually, that's like the aggressive, the angry black woman stereotype yeah. that comes from that. You know, you think about Gone with the Wind, and, yeah. and you, you think about all these characters that we've grown up with, it's just there, just quietly bubbling away. And I was listening to something the other day about Enid Blyton, and the references in Enid Blyton are awful, mm. really awful. And if you think about, if this is what's going into the minds of young children, this is yeah. the norm, this is what they think, of. this is what shapes their values, their beliefs. Their approach to people. Their approach, their opinions, their yeah. vocabulary. Yeah. Gosh. So that, so that was um, that was very interesting mm. um, about how the women are seen and how they really fought against being perceived in a very specific way. Mm. So the angry black woman is something that every black woman is scared of being described as because it's such a huge stereotype. And that's why you saw people like Serena Williams taking such offence mm. to her, you know, her on-court conduct. She had an outburst. She was cross. Yes. But when Andy Murray does it or when John McEnroe did it or when other people yeah. do it, it's absolutely fine. So black women have to live by a very different set of rules. They can't mm. fulfil the stereotypes. So what you're finding is these women are self-censoring a lot. And by self-censoring, they're having completely the opposite effect as well because people then don't think that they have an opinion. Mm. They're, they're not strong enough to lead so on the one hand, they're trying not to be the angry black woman, but yeah. on the other end, people are going, well, you're not saying anything. You're not demonstrating any energy or passion. You're clearly not a leader. So kind of damn if you do and you're damned sure. if you don't. And then the big thing, the big thing that we, that we discovered, which what is really a new concept that does warrant a PhD, but we'll come on to that, mm. um, is this intragender, interracial conflict. So as I mentioned before that... The creative industry, marketing, advertising, and publishing, which is what I studied, it is generally a very white, female-dominated industry now. So mm. they're the new prototype within the industry. Yeah. So what you're finding is that there's a conflict between black women and white women. And what I was finding in terms of my research is that the people that are creating these barriers are white middle-class women. They're somehow consciously or unconsciously perpetuating yeah. the oppressive treatment of black women. In lots of different ways. Um, one girl said that she turned up for an interview at a company and she was sitting in reception waiting to be seen. Mm -hmm. And this young middle-class girl, brunette, she went up to her, she tapped on her shoulder and said, are you in the right place? So the suggestion for that is not, can I help you? It was a bit, it, the suggestion is that people like you don't belong here. Mm. You're not in the right place. And what happened was that this girl had the interview it was a very good interview. She was offered the job. She was shown around the office and she found out that the girl who had tapped her on the shoulder and mm. said, are you in the right place, 
would have been working on her team. And then she looked at the team and said that everybody looked the same. She said mm. they were practically carbon copies of each other. Yeah. And she said, I don't want to work there because I don't want to have to deal with that yeah. sense of otherness all the time. And they already, she said, you've already communicated what you think about people like yeah. me in that one statement. Not, can I help you? How are you? Hi, are you waiting for somebody? There were so many ways she could have communicated that she wasn't expressing mm. an opinion about her. So that was that was really interesting. Um, in the same way, one of the participants told me about the fact that she was at um, a conference once and she was one of the people that had helped to organise the conference. Mm -hmm. so she was just standing around making sure things were yeah. running. And she said this older woman tried to give her her empty wrapper, just walked over to her and said, here you go. And the participant said, um, I'm not quite sure why you're giving this to me. She said, the bin's over there. And the woman was like, no, just take it. Just take it, it's your job. And that's the kind of thing that these women are experiencing on a daily basis this unconscious bias that's about you possibly not being good enough, not being part of my in-group. And they're always experienced being in the out-group, so they're reduced to stereotypes mm. all the time. So, Sarah, I'm conscious that one... Conscious is an ironic word to use. <laughs> and conscious that one organisational response could be unconscious bias training. Yep. Seems to be very popular. Yep. Seems to be... An approach? Yes. Um, what do you think of unconscious bias training? I think unconscious bias training is really important as long as people don't use it as an excuse to say, I have this unconscious bias, so that's okay. I can't help it. Yes. So I think as long as it's done in the right way and yeah. it's really used to help people um, be more conscious of their unconscious mm. bias, yeah. then I think it can be really effective. Um, but I think if you're going to do that training... You have to really want to make some changes. You can't just do it to go through the motion to tick a box. Yeah. So I think organisationally, if you're going to invest in it, you have to be really proactive about making sure you, you see it through to its fruition. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. I think sometimes I see it and people are introducing it as like, phew, that's a tick in the box, yeah. we've done that. Now everyone's aware of your unconscious bias, don't forget. Yeah, exactly. And we might come back to it in five years. Yeah, it's like, it's a bit, it's like another tick, but it's like, okay, so we've hired someone that's black, yeah. that's someone that's female, that's <laughs> someone's got a disability, yeah. someone that's gay, and we're, yeah. you know, and we're really nice to those people, it's fine. Yeah. And we might promote one of them, that's another tick box. It's yeah. that kind of, it, I think that's what we're trying to fight against, like stop seeing people as in, okay, you're a quota and we're going to meet that quota. Mm. So whilst I think it's great that quotas are being set within mm. the industry, there's still that worry that we have to set the quotas, but people aren't going to be recognised mm. for their individual talent. I think, I think for me that's what it is. It's about individuality. We're, we're all different. No one can be reduced to uh, a racial group, uh, a gender group, etc., etc. Exactly. Let, let's start. Let's start bringing a bit of respect and curiosity. Yes. If you don't know what the perspective of another person is like in the workplace, 
I think it's okay to ask. Yes. Is it not? It really is okay to ask. And I think we spend so much time trying to be polite about it. But, you know, don't just ask the black person. Ask everybody for their opinion on whatever it is that you think that you want to know about yeah but and and try and find out more if you're not sure ask the question if you don't know about someone's cultural heritage Mm. or you don't you don't know about their religious beliefs Mm. ask them because it's better to ask and learn yes than warrant than make some silly comments like one girl from the from the study said that she was wearing a headscarf mm-hmm. at work one day and someone a girl a young girl who hadn't who was quite sheltered had a quite sheltered upbringing said to her i love your rastafarian vibe today <laughs> she was thinking where on earth has that come from oh, gosh. i'm just wearing a headscarf yeah why is that a rastafarian vibe so it's just silly things like that that the intent, there was no malice in the intent, there's, there's but it's the... probably no malice, no, no. but it's just but it's lazy just, thinking. It's lazy or... thinking, and it shows that how they've absorbed these ridiculous... I'm not saying Rastafarianism is ridiculous, but they've absorbed mm. stereotypes yeah. that they associate with black people, so therefore... And then you think about probably what the main stereotypes are associated with that. Then you're at the point where this is what you think yeah. about black people. Oh yeah, yeah. just 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 chiming with that experience. Um, where are we now? Is it Saturday? Yeah. Uh, Thursday, two days ago, someone was talking at someone in a different organisation but similar job to mine, and they said, "Oh, he's a psychologist, and he's gay." Do you know him? <laughs> like, there's a secret sort of pink mafia. Like, obviously, there is a secret <laughs> pink mafia, but don't tell anyone. But um, yeah, it's it's those assumptions. It isn't is it? those assumptions that are really silly and show it speaks to someone's unconscious bias, which are shaped by their beliefs, which are shaped very early on in childhood. So maybe I think also it's about educating children at a much younger level as well, yeah, yeah. Uh, and speaking about these things very openly. Yeah. Um, helping them to understand because it's pervasive isn't it I think if you grow up in an environment where that's the norm mm. we have to start saying that's not norm that's not the norm that's not normal that's not okay yeah. um, and then hopefully we should start seeing some changes so Sarah this has been such a fascinating conversation I could go on for hours hearing more and more about your research because I know there's so much more of it yeah and Peace Supers, if you want to hear more, drop me a line and we'll get Sarah back on if she's willing. Oh, I'd, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, but you mentioned earlier, you mentioned more research and you mentioned those mm. three little letters, PhD. Now, who's, who's that referring to, Sarah Bonner? I, I mean, some crazy person who clearly didn't learn her lesson from doing a master's. <laughs> so this is you thinking this of is doing me, it. I think... Would that be with Dame Julia of Yates? I would... That would be with Dame Julia of Yates. I think it's... I'm not ready yet, but I also feel that there are two areas from this research that really warrant a PhD. The interracial, intergender conflict is a massive area that is not... It was a new theoretical discovery for us. Um, And that does warrant a PhD. It needs more research... It needs better understanding. And I think everybody... I think there's this 
myth that because we're all women we're all in it together and we all get along but mm. that's not the case it's really not the, that's well that's what my research is telling yeah. me that's not yeah. the case and I think we have to think about when you do have a new prototype mm. within an industry and there's a group that's the that's now the new mm. norm mm. You, we have to think about the impact that's having on anybody who is considered not the norm so we so before we would always focus on white middle-class men as the prototype, yeah. but now you've got a new prototype, which is white middle-class women. What is the impact that is having? How is that affecting black women? How, and it's a different set of challenges, I think. And I, um, what we might see is that it, it is very unconscious, obviously, at one level. Mm. There's a lot of kind of... It's a bit of a power struggle as well, you know, mm women have fought to be in these positions and there might be a, a, a feeling that we've got here so we're not letting it go and there's that whole queen bee syndrome yeah. going on so i think we just need to interrogate that a bit wow. more particularly if this is going to be if you're if you're going to promote more women mm. to leadership level and majority are probably going to be white women we need to really think about the impact that is going to have on the workforce. Yeah. And I think we seem to think once we've got women in leadership positions, then there's going to be no more bias, there's going to be a huge amount of diversity. Yes. But if you are still recruiting in your own image and you happen to be a white middle class mm. female, which is what's happening in the creative yeah. industry, you're going to get more of the same. So you're just shifting the emphasis from white middle class men mm. to white middle class women. We still yeah. have fundamentally the same issues just different oh gosh I, I completely respect your pause in considering whether you're going to do a PhD because completing a master's is an, is an enormous thing yeah but um, oh gosh that sounds exciting it does it really does and and it's 2k19 and I can't believe what I'm hearing from your research yeah it's bonkers isn't it yeah so, so if I said to you, and this is possibly impossible, because uh -huh. I like to give a bit of a takeaway for the piece yes. of this, to think, crikey, what can we do? Um, so is there anything for organisations to do? Is there anything for individuals to do? Yeah. I think um, for organisations, it's about being curious. It's about looking at your workforce and really thinking, have we got the right strategy? Mm. Particularly when it comes to recruitment as well, are you when you when you want your diversity targets and you're trying to hit these diversity quotas? There's no point in saying we want a more divert work, a diverse workforce mm. and then just keep recruiting from the same pool of people all the time because you're not going to get different attitudes. Yeah. You're not going to get different ideas. Mm. Uh, so you have to think about. What's your current strategy and how are you recruiting people? Are you recruiting people by word of mouth? Are you recruiting people through recruitment agencies? What methods are those recruitment agencies using to select people? What, what populations are you reaching? Yeah, what are you reaching out to? And, I, and then you have to think about who are those recruit... What do those recruitment agencies look like? What kind yeah. of people are they recruiting? If you think about the norm within that world, Crikey. you're... Yeah. You know, it just, it's its so systemic. There's potential just to compound the yeah, issue. Yeah, exactly. So think about, you know, it's a creative industry. 
think of creative Get ways creative. to yeah. recruit people. Like, yeah. don't keep going to the same universities or the same looking for the same school backgrounds for these people how do you get into society mentor some people start setting up some mm. some workshops in areas that you wouldn't normally go into you know talent comes in all different shapes sizes forms mm. it doesn't come in this white middle class package that speaks and, in a very and if organisations don't realise sorry I interrupted you because I'm no, getting no, overexcited no, but if organisations don't realise that they frankly you're going to fail frankly no one's going to want to work for you exactly and you're going to get that more... sounds a bit trite but, no, but, but, but I think more employees are thinking about these things when they apply and it's not just the people from say BAME backgrounds yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the people with white privilege who are thinking what, what are the demographics yeah. of this, this organisation? Yeah. Exactly. So starting I, to, I think. I think people are starting to. Uh, but I think there's, you know, there's more... People are looking for more from their organisations mm. now, aren't they? There's a responsibility for everybody to mm. call it out as well. Yes. I think that's, that's the other thing. If you see something mm. that is not right, you do have to have the confidence to call out. If you hear your workmate saying something that you know is a bit like that's a bit dodgy mm. like there's everyone's worried that political correctness gone mad there's political there's political correctness and then there's just stuff that just shouldn't be tolerated there's just plain offensive there's offense and it's ignorance and don't we shouldn't have to put up with it no i think you just have to be brave enough to call it out so if you hear someone talking about someone in a reductive way then mm. just be like no and that's not right. No. Peace supers, can we be bold enough? I think it takes a bit of boldness from those of us with white privilege, or can we be courageous enough to call this stuff out rather than just either remaining silent in the office yeah. or just maybe even joining in with some sort of <laughs> laughter mm. or, oh, that's just the way person yeah, X is. Exactly. He's just a bit of a, a lad and it's just off his banter. Yeah. And one thing, and this is probably familiar with P-Supers who work in organisations, if a white middle-aged man ever comes and says, oh, why can't we have a white middle-aged man network? Do me one favour, <laughs> apart from... No, I wouldn't resort to, I wouldn't resort to <laughs> violence. Resort to violence. No, but get them to listen to this episode of People's <laughs> Soup. That might be a good way to start. Yeah, absolutely. And look around, P-Supers, look around and just really... Be honest with yourselves. Like, re really, are you are you doing what you say you want to do? I know it's it's hard, but look around yourselves. Are you doing everything you can to diversify your organisation, mm. to diversify your teams? Are you being brave enough to make those decisions? Are you being brave and fair? Yeah. And are you recognising your own bias and maybe even talking about your own bias? Yeah. Share that. Exactly. Share that because I think the more we share that bias that we have, the more other people might become aware of their own bias exactly. and the impact that that could be having on their behaviour. Exactly. And the shape of talent. Talent comes in different guises, but at the moment we seem to think it comes in a very specific way. Mm. We're used to the way that we think talent and... Um, intelligence comes across mm. but it's, it comes in lots of different ways and it might be that you might have to work a little bit harder to find it yeah. and that's why the dissertation was called Tapping Into Black Magic because mm. if you work you might have to just once you tap into it and you take the time to find it it's 
going to be so incredible mm. and there's so much more not just black women everybody has to offer mm. but sometimes it doesn't come in this package that you expect it to come in you might just need to be curious and have an open mind and look beyond what you expect to see mm. I think that's the takeaway isn't it thank you that's beautifully beautifully put be curious open-minded and realise that things might not come in the package that you expect to see them in. Oh, Sarah, my goodness. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank, Thank you for being an absolute bloody inspiration, <laughs> um, an amazing researcher. Thank you. And thank you so much for bringing it to life for us today. Thank you. I so appreciate that. I'm absolutely humbled, inspired, invigorated. I don't know what other words to use, but... Oh, um, thank you. Thank you for having me. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Boom. There you have it, P-Supers. Sarah, what an amazing guest. Thank you so much. P-Supers, I think you'll agree that Sarah is a great speaker and has a knack of explaining things in such a clear and articulate way. I'd also like to thank Martha for being our special audience for this episode and for taking some cracking photos. I've added Sarah's post of her research in the show notes, which you can find at peoplesoup.co. And just before I sign off, P-Supers, Sarah's words that struck me are, are you doing what you say you want to do? And I'll add to that in the workplace and beyond. How are we all showing up at work? That's something for us all to reflect on. You can get in touch with me at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com, on the Twitter we're at peoplesouppod, on Instagram at people.soup, on Facebook we're at peoplesouppod, and as I've mentioned our new shiny website is at peoplesoup.co. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic, thanks to the projects for allowing us to record in their fabulous lounge, special mention to the seagulls of Brighton for adding to the ambience, and most of all, thanks to you for listening. Thank you so much. Have a great week and bye for now. I've got a feeling you're going to be back on this podcast if you're willing. I would love to come back on, even if it's just to remember the words to Cat Amongst the Pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. And um, oh, there's something else I was going to say. I've forgotten. <laughs>